and she begged him. She's like, "We got to figure out how to stay on the West Coast. I don't, I don't be married to a miserable, <laughs> a miserable guy going to work because you're going to be miserable to me to the kids. You're not going to be healthy, probably. Like, like for what? Another X percent of wealth that maybe you could retire three years earlier. You know, so that ability to tell the story is invaluable because story wins every time, and it's not just." Great stories that win the stories backed by data, so that people can remember the specifics associated with that. Welcome to Innovation and Leadership, where I interview uncommonly high achievers like top investment fund managers, elite special operations soldiers, startup CEOs who sold their companies for billions of dollars, pro athletes, Hollywood filmmakers—really as many different kinds of experts as I can. The whole idea is to hear how they did it, and then what advice they have for the rest of us that can be applied to the organizations we're trying to grow and innovate. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed today's show. This is part two of our interview with Damon Diamore. If you missed part one, please go back and hear about his work mentoring top CEOs from Fortune 100 companies and venture-backed exciting companies and all that kind of stuff. Damon, I, I teased people at the end of part one that we were going to talk about your time in Hollywood. Can, can we start there? Happy to chat about anything that won't violate an NDA. <laughs> so uh, tell people about some of the cool projects you were on, what you did. So as a reality producer back after Wall Street, I went into independent film for a bit and then transitioned to reality. And because I had a business background, the first show that I was hired to produce on was The Apprentice with Trump back uh, when it was uh, still in New York before any celebrity stuff in seasons four and five. And I was a liaison initially, one of the producers between the brands and then creating the challenges for the show and managing the, the expectations of the brand and the network. So I dealt a lot with you know large corporate C-suite folks. And it was nice because it was still kind of businessy. Whoops. It was still kind of businessy, but also creative. So I did Apprentice for a couple seasons, which was amazing. And then I did a bunch of other shows and some online gaming promotions that were massive with, with Mark Burnett and AOL and Yahoo. And then ultimately the last show that I produced, I was um, one of the producers of an undercover boss. And I interviewed about 300 CEOs to be the first on that show for the first two seasons and built relationships that to this day, I just texted one this morning for their 50th birthday. But a lot of those folks became investors and advisors and channel partners. And then later on, my, my first coaching clients, which is how I got into the coaching. But yeah, so Undercover Boss and Apprentice were the two biggest shows in my in my you know resume. Yeah. Okay. I have so many questions. But I'm gonna start with, you know, previous previous to the the world phenomenon of Donald Trump, what was he like? What was he like back then? Nobody wants to hear this, but he was like a really nice guy back then. You know, in New York, when we shot the show, it's his town and he's a super busy guy. And I remember the first or second day back then we would shoot with cameras that had actual tape in them. So they would run out and he was on some long rant and I had to walk up and say, you know, Mr. Trump, like, call me Donald. Uh, yeah, we need you to do that again. And he said, Damon, if you really need me to do it again, I'm happy to do it. If you're wasting my time, I'm going to be really, really angry. And I was like, I think we really need it. He was like, great. So like, he valued his time more than anything, A, because he can't get it back. But B, if he wasn't with us, he's on his way to a Yankee game with Steinbrenner or like, you know, like he's it's his town. Whereas I heard it was different when he got to L.A. because I didn't do those seasons. He had a lot more time on his hands. But um, he was a joy. And, you know, at that time, which I, which I learned later, everybody learned. He's a master at controlling the narrative, whatever the narrative is. Like every coffee uh, shop or water cooler on a Monday for those years, 15 million people were watching that show on a Sunday night, you know? So I always tell people narrative wins over fact 
every time, you know, because ultimately the facts might get checked, but in the moment, story wins 100% of the time and we're kind of in this post-factual world now, like regardless of political leanings where, be it a meme or a tweet, whatever it is, people assume that it's the truth because it came from some media authority that might have 10 million people retweet it. It's not. So yeah, he, he was amazing to work with. And you know, the, 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 the scope of executives that would come on that show that had tremendous accomplishments that just looked up to him, like, you know, some guy is great, great salesman. Like, you know, he would smile and shake these people's hands and no matter what they had accomplished in their life, it was like, they were finally getting their gold star because Donald Trump had, you know, taking the time to look in their eyes and give them their their one-on-one. Interesting. So in 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 the years since then, what have been your observations or what have been your, you know, seeing seeing him through all the ups and downs here? I got to be careful. Yeah, I know. We're getting a controversial space here. Yeah, it was di- it was different answering these questions when I lived in LA because there was an actual visual anger towards him. I think he's a little bit more accepted out here in Utah. But regardless, you know, my biggest impression- Do you know this is actually the only Republican state that he didn't clean up in? Really? It's interesting. Yeah. 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 You know, I'll say this. When I saw he was running, I was like, oh, this has got to be for some promotion for an upcoming book or a new show. Like he doesn't want, this guy doesn't want to- That's what I thought. Right. And, uh, And then, you know, and I wasn't a fan initially. Then I watched him- systematically take down 12 or 13 career politicians with the backing of the party, all the party money. They didn't want him in the party. It didn't matter. He was slaughtering these guys like primary after primary. And I remember watching the uh, correspondence dinner at one point and Obama was really digging into him and, you know, making jokes at his expense. And after the first few jokes, Trump went from smiling to like, I'll be a good guy about it to flat faced to really irritated and I called one of my former apprentice pals and I said, they're going to push this guy too far. He's going to walk out of that building and figure out how to win no matter what it takes. And I saw this documentary on Showtime years later called Trumps with these three DNC Democrat lobbyist guys. And they said at that same moment, they were texting Obama's handler saying, you better get him to stop. And they were like, what are you talking about? This guy's never going to be president. And, you know, he's motivated by that. So even if he didn't want to be, it's like, you tell me that like you think I'm a joke, like I'm going to show you. And there's a great YouTube video cut together, like five minutes of interviews with 60 Minutes, Charlie Rose, you know, Obama, Oprah, Hillary. What do you think about a Trump presidency? And before any of them could answer, they just burst out laughing and it's all looped together. And I was like, you don't understand the psychology of this guy trying to live up to his dad's, you know, legacy and always being thought of as like less than. He he wakes up at three in the morning, watches these vid types of videos over and over, and then gets on Twitter and blasts some world leader. I'm like, you're dealing with like one of the biggest narcissists ever. And he doesn't care. He's accountable to no one. He did it without money. He did it using Twitter. He's a, he's a true first third party candidate, which a lot of progressive people should be happy with, but they hate him because of the way he comes across. And I think it's amazing that he just proved like you can anybody can do it. Like you can take down the first female viable candidate for president with the media's backing to the point where they admitted later they skewed media uh, polls and the most electable last name in history. And say the craziest stuff every day and still keep crushing her in the polls. Like, you know, I think it was refreshing to people like Gen Xers to see somebody who didn't care about being a politician and just calling things out for what they were. And 
I look, I don't know the guy well by any means. I just work with him. There's one of a lot of people who work with him, but I'm a good judge of people and character and emotional intelligence. And it doesn't surprise me by a long shot, the little interaction I had with him over that period of time for over a year, that it was consistent interaction. And it's like, yeah, that's the guy who's up tweeting at 3 a.m. or who's going to do what he – people were shocked that he did these things as policy. But I'm like, why would you be? He said it over and over. Like if you tell him that – like right now, it's kill, it kills him, I'm, I'm sure, that he's not in charge of this whole you know, disaster that's unraveling right now as we talk. We, we all know what's on the news. Yeah, a, a fascinating social like profile study as an individual. Yeah, hopefully that's not too rambling of an answer. But yeah, he's, uh, he's, he's one of a kind. It's so fascinating. You know, I didn't vote for him, but I, I, there's so many, like, there's so many good things. There's so many other good things I feel like he could have done yeah. because he wasn't mired in like, in like the party, or the, you know what I mean? Like, because he was like, because <laughs> he's willing to throw caution to the wind. Yeah. You know what I mean? There's like, there's other like big things I, that I wish he could have done, but he got so mired in himself. The, the one thing you know, that I, I regretted some was of one- that. Yeah, once he got there, I thought he would like tone down the image that people hate, that a lot of people hate, and he didn't. But he did get like four or five peace deals done in the Middle East, like like in record, like like he accomplished all these things. And there was one point where a late night host in L.A. went to UCLA or USC, one of the campuses, with a list and went up to all these college kids and said, "We're going to name off ten accomplishments Obama did. What do you think?" And they were all like, "Nobel Prize." And at the end of it, they said. That's what Trump's done the first three years. And they were horrified because at the end of the day, people couldn't look at him for his accomplishments. It was filtered by orange man bad at any cost, you know, and it's just tragic. Listen, I, I'm I'm super disappointed in a number of things that he said or did. Right? <laughs> and and I think it's like, I, you know, I got teenage boys, you know, I, there's a whole bunch of things I don't want them following his example on the way he treats women's, you know, some of that kind of stuff. But the but it is interesting to hear like very, very liberal Democrats in business talk about, well, we, we really did need somebody to do a reset with China, you know, and just nobody, nobody's had the guts in how many years, you know? One of my clients has a massive uh, industrial side of their business in China. And when I asked him, I said, how do you feel with this th- thing going on? Like your business is taking a hit. He said, you know what? It's necessary. Otherwise, I wouldn't have a business to hand down to my kids in 10 or 15 years. And like you said, like they were grateful there was somebody who stood up and did it even though it wasn't popular. It's like George Bush. <laughs> He's so erratic. They had to take him serious. Because <laughs> there's like, do you know what I mean? Yeah. I was having a conversation. Like they're, I think they're like legitimately scared. What's he, you know, is he going to cut off his nose to spite his face? Like what could, how could this actually go bad for us? You know, I had a conversation about this yesterday with some former, um, you know, soldiers that were in Afghanistan with everything going on. And they said, well, you know, we weren't really Trump fans, but, and I said, that but is why people put up with him and liked him. Because, you know, when Iran overstepped in Iraq, within 30 hours, he had turned their number two general to dust with a drone. He didn't ask permission from anybody. And now we have, you know, today was horrible. I think it was like 12 Marines dead already in, in Kabul. Um, Is that the suicide attacks from today? Yeah. Outside the and the number's 12 and still growing. And they're talking about, you know, if we don't make this deadline, it be a hostage crisis on a scale like we've never seen, like, you know, holding American soldiers for rent. Like, it's insane. And regardless of what you think of the guy, the moment that the Taliban backed out of their agreement to give safe passage, he would have carpet bombed, you know, 
Taliban territory. So I don't want to get political on the podcast business, but you asked yeah. about Trump. But um, it, it is crazy over there. We've been we've been trying to help with some stuff. We've had a bunch of late night phone calls here, and yeah. I've got some active duty DoD folks there that I've been talking to, and and some veterans, you know, some guys from the unit, stuff like that, that are over there trying to help out. And it, I tell you what, man, makes you cry. It is it is real sad what's going on for some of these families. Yeah, I've had vet pals send me screenshots of messages their interpreters and people that work with them are sending them that they're trapped and their families are trapped and now they know who they are and they're going to get slaughtered. And it's just, you wouldn't think that in 2021 as like basically a unipolar world, like the United States is, that's the only deal in town for a superpower that you would be, this is what I grew up with like in the 70s with the hostage crisis. So you wouldn't think that 50 years later, you know, this is a reality, like people begging for their lives for America to not back out on their word. But that's also a leadership lesson, you know? It's like you you better you don't don't promise anything unless you can deliver on it, you know, because people remember and you know, it's gonna be a long time if we ever, you know, get back a reputation hit from this. Yeah, it's crazy. Well, maybe we'll go like somewhat less controversial. Yeah. Let's talk, let's talk about Undercover Boss. To, to those people still listening who haven't like set their podcast on fire. <laughs> um, <laughs> Undercover Boss was amazing. I was asked to help with the casting of the show and um, because I knew a lot of these CEOs from Apprentice. And at the time, in it was late 2008, November when I got the call. And America hated corporate CEOs because they saw the recession, the bubble blew up. They imagine these guys and gals in, you know, castles and mansions while they're losing their homes. And I said, if you if I do this, the show had better portray these folks as like humanize them. And they said, that's what we want to do. And that was always the greatest compliment. People would say, oh, my, you worked on that show. I said, yes, as one of the many people. And they said, wow, I never knew how normal these people were, that they were just like regular individuals, you know? So that was that was the great part of it. And to this day, there's still some of the companies that were on the show still implement that employee feedback at a high level, you know, once a year or whatever it might be. And it's really, you know, it, I think it changed corporate culture and the expectations of corporate culture to some degree, along with the whole Zappos thing. But it really shone a light on, you have 100,000 employees? That's 100,000 people who have lives. And when you make these decisions in the boardroom, you cross out a line item, people lose their houses, you know, or or you're overboardening somebody. You, th you thought five people did this job now. It could be on three. No, these guys show up at the factory and they're like, how do three people do this job? They're like, well, we can't. So, you know, it's, it's getting real on the ground intelligence about how a business works, which decades ago you had to have you know the guy who ran the foundry was a guy who worked in the foundry 20 years before you know he knew every job in the business nowadays you're a harvard mba you work for a pe firm you get placed into some interim ceo <laughs> all of a sudden you're in charge of 30,000 people not that anything's wrong with that um but there's definitely a disconnect between how a business actually works and runs on a on a tactical level and the strategies that you're asking those people to implement for you cool well, when you think about, you know, the Hollywood version of CEOs to now advising them, what are any lessons that you took away from that time that have been helpful in what you do now? Showing vulnerability, and that doesn't mean showing weakness by any means. Jordan Peterson has a great uh, portion of a speech on this. But basically, the leaders that have been the most successful over the last decade that I've seen, both with cultural shifts about what millennials or Gen Z expect from their employers and also the crisis is that 
you need to show vulnerability in that that's, you know, you need to open up the funnel for ideas and feedback. And it shouldn't just be in your C-suite and your board. And when the leaders that, who I've seen who have gone after their employees and even suggested like, like bad ideas as answers to problems, all of a sudden their team, their staff realizes, wow, if he could say that, I could say my suggestion. And that's, that, that's, like, that's, <laughs> one, of the, that's one of the greatest lessons, like letting pe- people know there aren't repercussions for, for, for not having all the answers. That's one thing. And the second thing is also really like building real loyalty in your, in your culture. Like I, I've seen businesses go through some hard times and their employees and key players stuck with them because the because they saw themselves, the part of their identity was that they were an employee of this company, the same way mm-hmm. they have an identity as a husband or wife or, you know, a, uh, a Trojan that went to USC, like whatever those core identity or, or a veteran, um, real big brands who do this great, like Jamie Dimon instills that. And I've known people that work for Chase for a long time that will not leave for, won't, won't leave for more money, won't leave for a promotion. Like Jamie is their general on the battlefield of global finance and they'll back him anytime. And that's a really special, and that's also shown vulnerability. He got into fights with regulators publicly and congressional hearings and he drew a line. I'll play the game until you cross this line. It's going to affect my business. And when people see that authenticity, that there is somebody in who's the biggest advocate for you because you're the biggest advocate for who you work for, that's invaluable as opposed to seeing so many leaders who are not up to task just bow to whatever the crowd demands. And you saw that last year with all the social things that went down. You see brands lose complete control of their narrative when the riot started and Everything they tried to do to make the the masses happy failed because once you give in an inch, it never ends. And the brands who really gained back control of the narrative retold it and stuck to it. And once they once the masses realized that they couldn't get them to budge, they went to the next vulnerable brand in the category. So yeah, authenticity, sticking up for your brand and for your people, and building a culture of real loyalty have been. Over and over, the, the most successful, biggest, best stories of companies and leaders that I work with. You know, one of the other things that comes to mind is, you know, when we were talking before about how to help uh, a CEO tell a narrative to the board, mm. you know, I imagine that, you know, people who are in like literally in the business of crafting narratives has got to be great training to help people come do it, you know, in the real world instead of on, on the screen. Yeah, I actually had someone, a client who was offered another job and it was between the West Coast, it was New York and LA and the New York job was more money and all these all these better perks and his 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 personal stakeholder his spouse said we got to take this you got to take this job. And I said, "Okay, what have you learned?" And he literally made a visual mind map with the colors of the two companies. And, you know, this is the climate I want to live in. This is how many hours I want to work a week. This is the entrepreneurial versus corporate vibe, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And he had two positives on the East Coast and like seven on the West Coast. And he didn't even say a word. He just picked it up and showed it to his spouse. He said, this is what I think about the, the position. And she begged him. She's like, we got to figure out how to stay on the West Coast. I don't I don't be married to a miserable <laughs> A miserable guy going to work because you're going to be miserable to me, to the kids. You're not going to be healthy probably. Like like for what? Another X percent of wealth that maybe you could retire three years earlier. 
you know? So that ability to tell a story is invaluable because story wins every time. And it's not just great stories that win. The story is backed by data so that people can remember the specifics associated with that. When somebody says, oh, this is Damon. He worked on Wall Street. Oh, everybody worked on Wall Street. It's like, oh, this is Damon who worked, you know, for Kenny Fitzgerald that ran a desk at 22 on the 105th floor of the World Trade Center. They would look at me and say, that's the guy that worked in the Trade Center before he graduated college and did XYZ. When they say, oh, he's a Hollywood producer, millions of them. Oh, that's the guy that worked on Apprentice Undercover Boss. Like, they always remember the specifics. And you need those, those specific data points that are real to back up your story. And when you have a good story and data points – all of a sudden now it's a narrative and, you know, people, people want to hold on to it. Okay. I didn't think about this till just now. I got to get some, I got to get some Hollywood advice from you. Okay. okay. <laughs> um, actually, before I do that, where's the best place for people to catch up with you online? People, they're interested. They, they might want some mentorship themselves. LinkedIn is the best place. My website's being re-updated now because I just moved to, to Utah, but LinkedIn is, um, I respond to LinkedIn every day and I do have a weekly um, read, reading list blog that I put out like top pieces that I share with clients on personal professional development. They can subscribe through my website, but LinkedIn's the best place to reach out and say hello and just also say, hey, I heard you on Jess's podcast, like not just a blind, you know, hi. Um, cool. By the way, what, give me one of your favorite books of all time. Of, of all, my, my number one book of all time is Atlas Shrugged. I've read it twice. I've, I've I used to give it out as gifts to people who looked at it and and would undertake the twelve hundred page commitment. The Atlas Shrugged is one hundred percent number one, but the, the top three, the top five, round out to Fahrenheit four fifty one. The things they carry by Tim O'Brien, um, The Heart Is a Lonely Hunter by Carson McCullers, and also a book that was by Harold Brodke called This Wild Darkness, where he. He basically kept a diary of his death when he got sick. I incredible self-reflection, self-awareness, like the resistance against being honest with yourself at the end and like really, really owning your life and your own choices. I, I was cry, cried when I read it on the subway back in the day. So those are my – and then business books, Essentialism by Greg McCowan. All my clients have to read the summary in the book. They're constantly telling me how they're assigning essentialist principles to their days and weeks and years. Um, also, The Go-Giver is a great book about thinking about every business interaction as transactional, but not in a negative, selfish way, as in, am I always giving this person I'm transacting with more than they're giving me? Because over time, this big Go-Giver karma wheel is going to come back and, you know. <laughs> oh, I love it. Okay. I got to get you to – P.S. I love that you can list those off so easily. I got to get you to email me those so we can put them on your page – on the Greystoke media so that anybody listening can go there and, and pull down your list. I have a um, blog post. That's my, way, top, you, my, my top five personal development books. I'll send you that link so they can see it. On oh there. yes. Send it over. Great. Okay. P.S. If you like essentialism, have you done 80, 20 principle by Richard Kosh and smart cuts by Shane Snow? We've done 80, 20 principle, but I don't know Shane Snow's book. Oh, it's amazing. So he's this guy, great guy. We, we did a big mini series with him last year. So he's, he's a reporter for wired magazine and, and fast company. And not, not getting as much work as he wanted. So he starts his own tech company helping journalists get work. And it turns into this, like, I probably shouldn't overshare. It turns into a, a valuation with a lot of zeros behind it called Contently. Okay. Wow. And in the meantime, writes these best-selling books, Dream Teams and, and Smart Cuts. And he, he's won uh, awards and now they're making TV shows about his articles on Cuba. Anyways, so he's like, I don't know. 40s is awesome. Okay. But his book, Smart Cuts, is it's all these stories of like 
why do so many presidents become presidents before a senator can become a senator? And like mm. all these people who refuse to wait in line and climb their own ladder, like they, they refuse to wait in line and climb the ladder they were told. And so they like invent their own ladder and get to the top faster. And so his thing is like shortcuts are when you skip unnecessary work, but it hurts others. Smart cuts are when you skip unnecessary work, but it doesn't hurt others. And uh, I think it's awesome. I experienced anyway. that in my life because leaving college to work on Wall Street, people said, you should stay there and get your MBA and go. I was like, no, I'm going to the trading floor at 21. People said, you're going to go work in the film business. You didn't go to film school. Well, watch this. I'm going to go figure it out, work harder than the other people who think they deserve to be there. And the first show I'll be a producer on is, you know, people call me I grew up with. I'm watching The Apprentice. Your name's on the screen. Venture capital, same thing. You can't start a venture capital fund. You're not an investment banking guy or work for a VC. Okay. Six months later, here's my SEC registration for my fund and my first GP commitment, you know? So I'd love shortcuts. Yeah. So yeah, Smart Cuts by Shane Snow. Smart cuts. Can't recommend it enough. Okay. So here's my, here's my last piece of advice from you. So I've been thinking about, I love the idea of using media instead of paying for advertising. Okay. Mm -hmm. So we've been thinking about a TV show. Like I was telling you, Greystoke investments are kind of the, the thing we're the most excited about is these adventure cabins and tree houses and like, you know, stuff that's got the highest rate of return in anything in real estate right now. Right. So I've been thinking like, it's great that Airbnb will put us on the front page if we can make something special enough. Right. But let's not leave it all in their hands Let's drive our own, let's drive our own bookings, right? So my thought is like, we should make an adventure show, like kind of like Red Bull type content, okay? Because that's my ideal, that's my ideal people to stay at these things at Whistler or Park City or outside of National Park or something. And like, but do like the HGTV show of how we made these things. You know, it's like the, the drama of like, because we're going to try and be like so cost effective and like hyper creative, getting artists involved to make them, right? Instead of buying stuff at Ikea. It's like HGTV, but like Red Bull version of HGTV, where it's like, it's the, we take adventures and then we have them getting involved in like inventing what the new cabin should look like. And anyways, this very, very early on in the pitch here, but uh, interested in any feedback. I think that's a great idea. The, I would take it one step further though, because if you only okay. want, if you only want those adventure people to rent your cabins, that's great. If you want people to think, oh, I'm going to go on a great wolf or, or, or some other adventure this summer, or I'm going to go rent one of these adventure cabins with my family, have these experts design it and then have them walk a normal family of four. It's almost like city slickers. Like, but like, how do you take normal vacationers and give them an adventure experience? That's where the masses think about, they're on their couch eating ice cream, watching your show, being like, you know what? I could probably take my family to one of these adventure cabins and do it. <laughs> Okay, I actually, I love this idea because I feel like we are an adventure family. You know, like like right now we live out in the woods and have dirt bikes and built a 10-foot snowboard gap in the backyard, you know, right? So like I, I intentionally actually want to build them, like instead of just like a two-person little A-frame, like do a number of them together. So like, you know, there can be like a dude's trip or a girl's trip or or a family trip, like an adventure family trip. Yeah. So you're right. I Like I probably need to bring that, like really emphasize that like, Hey, your family, like my thought is like, instead of just renting rooms, can we almost be like an entertainment company? Like staying at our place is entertainment. You know, you shouldn't rent a room. You, like, sh you should rent an experience basically because okay, I you love know, it. You know, if you say, oh, dad's a CPA, mom's a high school teacher. One kid is in 4-H and the other kid like was on a soccer team. You know what? You might think you're an ordinary American family. 
but you are the perfect demographic to have an insane adventure that you will remember for the rest of your lives on the best family vacation ever. And your adventure is is coordinated and built and 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 you know customized, curated by a world class adventure guy or gal. Like that's awesome. Okay. <laughs> you know what? Okay, I love this idea. My thought is there's a bunch of the pros who are like my age, right? Pro snowboarders or whatever. Who, who do have a family. We should get like, we take the pro snowboarder, bring his wife and kids and the regular family. And it's like, you pair up the 15 year olds, you pay up the, pair up the seven year olds, you pair up the moms, you pair up the dads and get, they all get the customized adventure experience. Because at the end of their week, they're not going to be experts, obviously, even the kids who had, you know, like Tony Hawk as a dad, but they're going to be able to handle themselves and have a bunch of video to put on Instagram and show their friends or TikTok. And it's like, oh my, like you went to, it'd almost be like, um, you know, you went to a basketball camp that Michael Jordan designed, you know, or, you know, something like that. Or you went to archery camp with some yeah. Olympian. Well, my thought is for these properties that like, you know, we go outside of Jackson Hole or Park City or somewhere like this and you go by like the raw land that doesn't have utilities. So everybody thinks it's worthless, worthless. So we can buy it cheap. Right. And we'll put it in our own septic, bring solar, like do the off grid thing. But like, also bring an excavator and like put in our own mountain bike park or put in, you know, get like a, an electric motor from a, from a a boat lift and put it in our own tiny tow rope. So it's like, you know, come out from New York to go to park city. Oh, also your place has a tow rope. So your kids can do tubing and sledding once the one after four o'clock when the resort is closed, it's the only place you can rent within 30 minutes of park city that you get your own bunny hill, you know, or your own snowboard park. I can almost see the content marketing. It's like when I grew up, we would go on road trips and they would give us these build your own adventure books where, you know, there's a bunch of blanks in there that you fill out. It's there you go. Like, you know, we're a family of four. We have a week's vacation built up. Where are we going to go? Disneyland, Europe, Grand Canyon or one of these adventure houses. It's like, well, what would you do? What would you want to do? Build your own adventure. And like every one of those variables is something that you can provide to them. And all of a sudden, their whole thing is greenlit because they have a curated, personally curated adventure. Yeah, dude, it's awesome. <laughs> That is such solid gold because we've been talking about put an extra shed. That's being a producer, buddy. On it. Yeah, a- I love this. Okay. We've been talking about putting a shed and like having some mountain bikes or kayaks or stuff there. So like, so somebody can just fly out and the adventure, like the whole adventure is there. But what's interesting when you're booking your trip, I love the choose your own adventure. It's like, how many days are here? Which of the things that are already on site are you putting into your, your adventure story? That's being your producer. One of my favorite, like, biggest compliments ever was a big Hollywood actor had a screenplay he wanted to do about football. And sports movies in general are hard to get greenlit because, you know, the smaller audiences, whatever. Um, and the title of the screenplay was Fourth and One. And before I read it, he handed it to me. And I took a marker. I kept a Sharpie on my desk and I crossed it out. And I said, Fourth and Inches, dude. Like, that's the... Like, you got to have a higher stick. He was like, you're brilliant. That's why you're a producer. It's like, you want an adventure? Okay. Make your own adventure. Final, final question here. One of my favorite questions to ask is, what's one of the best pieces of advice you ever received? One of the best pieces of advice I ever received was from the first real mentor I ever was fortunate enough to have. And I pitched him. Initially to have a job because I was broke and 
he looked at this history of products that I had brought to market, even in small, small ways, you know, selling them on Shopify or whatever businesses I built. And he looked at me in a time of desperation when I needed a job. And he said, Damon, I can't hire you. You're just like me, but you don't drive an Aston Martin yet. <laughs> I said, <laughs> what does that mean? He says, you haven't had a, a, a true mentor to show you the proper ways to vet a business, build a business, pick a team, like, like, like have, have life balance as an entrepreneur. He said, you remind me of me, myself in that I, I tried to build and blew up like five or six businesses for a decade. And my family kept begging me, stop trying to be an entrepreneur. And now they all live in no-show Big big houses I bought for them have no-show jobs, et cetera, because I finally came across somebody who taught me the right ways to do it and did it out of love and payback, not because they had some big piece of equity. And he pulled out his Amex and his driver's license. He said, go photocopy my credit card and driver's license and go book your tickets to take this trip for this idea that you have to like build this company and come back with the research and I'll help you out. And that that was, and he said, the only thing I'm asking is that one day when you're in a place to do it, that you find somebody who comes across your desk who looks just like you look right now to me, desperate, and you help them to to do the right thing and like actually learn how to be an entrepreneur. And to this day, he's I wouldn't have the success I had without his help. So the biggest piece of advice that I that I ever got was find a mentor and do it the right way. People always ask me how do I find a mentor. I mentor a lot of college kids, and they say, oh, when I get out in the world. I say, don't ask somebody to be your mentor. A lot of people have never done it, and that sounds terrifying. They're thinking about a time commitment. They're going to ask you for money. You're going to ask for money. I said, here's how you get a mentor. Do as much work as you can on what you're working on until you hit a wall. And then find somebody who's an expert in that space or has experience and ask for advice by saying, I've done steps one through four. I'm stuck on five. Chances are they'll have a cup of coffee with you or these days of Zoom and covid and then do the work because 99% of people that they come across never do the work and follow up and then follow up a month later and say, hey, I got through five with your advice, then six and seven. Now I'm stuck on eight and they start coming back. And before you know it, after a few of these interactions, is it okay if we meet once a month or once a quarter? Can I buy? And then like, that's how you build a relationship, you know, and I've done it over and over and it's fulfilling because so many people that I meet have said, wow, like most people would never come back and actually do the work. And it's like, well, I'm an all-in person. Like, you know, like there is no plan B. Like I burnt all my ships, you know, like my marriage is on the rocks. My 401k is drained, invested in this idea. Like if I don't drive the seven and a half hours to Dubuque, which happened one time, I'm not going to get the next hundred grand to like keep this company going, you know? And that was a great, I'm just going in my book. I got to this guy's, this this venture guy's office, and he said, "Don't come to I, don't come to Iowa. Like I don't have any more money for you." And I said, I, "I have to come." So I went out there, flew into Chicago from L.A., got stuck in a storm. They canceled my flight till the next morning, and my meeting was at seven thirty a.m. So I rented a car, drove from the airport to Dubuque, Iowa, in the middle of the night. Got in, eyes bloodshot. Showed up at this guy's office and handed him the prototype of the product we made at Wayfounder, and he looked at it. And then he called his wife and like took a couple of pictures and sent it to her. It was a kitchen product. And he came back and he said, you got the hundred grand. He said, you're the only person that tangibly built something with the money I gave you last year. And it's like, great. You know, and as through the night, I was driving, calling friends back home. What are you doing? I'm driving through cornfields, dark out, like listening to Black Sabbath, drinking coffee. And um, they said, dude, why don't you just go home and fly back another time? I was like, there's no tomorrow, dude. 
Like, and then the ones who will go out of their way to help you don't just respect the hustle. They respect the all-in attitude. Like, this guy's really putting it all on the line. I can take 10 minutes out of my day and help him or I can make this introduction or I can listen to him. Um, because somewhere in their past, nobody believed in them. And they were making decisions that everybody around them thought were the worst decisions possible, but they knew they had to do it. You know, you, you got to you got to suffer for in order to get what's great, man. You have to do it. You know, and a lot of people won't. They want the comfort, which is fine. Take your comfort. Like at times in my life, would I have loved to drive a Range Rover and had a corporate job? Yeah, but I took the bus and I did my own thing. And before you knew it, people were like, wow, I wish I had the guts that you had to like quit your job and build this thing. It's like you see the 80th step in the process. You don't see the 79 <laughs> suffering points between that. But yeah, find a mentor. Find somebody who really wants to invest in helping you because because they want to see you succeed, not because they have points on your cap table or something, you know? Love it. I I think that is such a great answer. I, I really <laughs> appreciate you. you sharing that with us. <laughs> the people that stuck around after the politicized part, hopefully that like made up for everything. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully they're they're glad they stuck around. <laughs> oh, I love it. Okay, people. Damon, this has been great. Thanks for making time for this. Thank you for having me on the show. It's been amazing. And I'll send you uh, the link to the top five books. Great. Bye, everyone.